listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Pullman Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Before we get going, I want to pray for our time this morning and just ask God to be blessed and, and be present here. So pray with me if you will. Father God, I, I thank you for this opportunity that you give to me to be able to stand up here and to present to your, your body and my brothers and sisters what it is that you've been sharing with me all week. I just pray, Lord, that you will continue to speak to me and through me today, that the words that I say and share are not my own, but that they are yours. And the things that people hear today will be from you. It'll be what they need to hear. Nothing more, nothing less. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to wrap up our series that we've been doing for the last seven weeks. It's called Invisible. Uh, if you've missed any of those, you can always jump on our, our website, rlcpullman.com, and listen to those and get, them, and get caught up. Um, but before we start, I want to just do a quick recap, in case you have missed some, just to remind ourselves of where we've been so far. We started off this series talking about the fact that we were created to be in relationship. That is in our very fabric of our being, that God created us to be in relationship, not just with him, but with one another. And then we talked about how in that relationship with God, though, specifically, that that thing starts with us stepping out in faith and believing that God is who he says he is and that he wants the best for us. From there, we moved on and we talked about how that God is all around us and he is working all around us And we asked ourselves, where are we? Are we joining that? And then we talked about how God does actually love you. And he wants to invite you in to a a loving relationship with him. And Corbin shared with us about Paul and his letter to the Romans, how he said, like, there is nothing in this world, heaven or on earth, that can separate us from the love of God. And then we went from that and we talked about how God actually invites you to be a part of that journey with him. He wants you to be a part of the work that he is doing in this world. After that, we went on and we talked about how God actually does speak to us. And he speaks to us in many ways. He speaks to us through prayer, he, thinks, he speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us in circumstances that we experience in our life. And he also speaks to us through one another. And a couple of weeks ago, Alex was up here and he talked about how this invitation that we have from God to join him in his work will oftentimes bring us to this point where we have this crisis of belief. And Alex encouraged us to lean into God in those moments, not run away. That in those moments where it's it's not a matter of, you know, you're in with God or you're out with God. You're always in with God. You're in with him. But he wants you to come with him, come to him in those moments. And last week, Corbin shared about adjusting our life so that we could join in God's will. Not trying to ask God to bless the things that we're doing, but to join him in what he's doing. 
and that he's going to bless us and mold us into the people that he wants us to be through that. So that brings us up to today. So where do we go from here when we're talking about this, having this relationship with a God that we can't see? If we start out this relationship in a step of faith, how do we keep on walking the path? What does that look like from day to day? I think we're going to find the answer in his word. So if you have your Bible, if you'll turn to 1 John chapter 2 with me, or it'll be up on the screen here in a minute. First John chapter 2, we are at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see, obedience is the key that opens the doors for us to experience God each and every day. Obedience is the key. Which I have to admit to you, even as I say that, like it makes me cringe a little bit. Because of the way that I approach obedience in my life. Like rules are great. Anybody else feel like rules are awesome? Yeah. Yeah. They have, it gives us expectations. It's like a fence that, we, that protects us from consequences and chaos from coming in. Like if everybody followed the rules, life would be great. But I know that's not the case. I know there's some of you out there that are like, look at the rules like the pirate's code. And it's more like a suggestion than anything else. But as a general rule, following rules, not very difficult for me. Let me share uh, one of the things that I know that irritates me probably the most in life is driving a car. And I say that because there are some very simple rules out there when it comes to driving. And some of you have experienced this, I'm sure. But there is probably nothing in life that challenges my Christianity more than when I stop at a four-way stop. (laughs) Like, the right-of-way rule is very simple. Isn't it? I mean, come on. Like, you get there first, you go. No? You want me to go? Oh, okay. Or like, I'm questioning people's intelligence. Like, do you know right from left? Like, put your hand out there. It makes an L. That's your left. That person goes, come on. These are the things that go on in my head, and I, I can't stop them. But it's this kind of stuff, this kind of mentality, these thoughts that I have towards the rules and following the rules that affects me when I go to my relationship with God. When I think about the things that God asks of me, the commands, the laws that he has written out in this word, like I take this mentality that they're just a bunch of things that I have to do 
in order to keep chaos at bay. There are a bunch of things that I have to do to make sure that God is pleased with me, to make sure God's going to work around me. Because if I step out of line, he won't do it. It's probably why, with that mentality, it's probably why I, I just identify so well with a group of, of people that we see in the, in the Gospels, and that's the group of the Pharisees. And we villainize them a lot in the church. But this is a group of people that believed that God's law was supreme. Like to usher God's kingdom back into earth, usher his, his rule back here, they were going to accomplish that by following the rules. So it makes sense when Jesus is like, you guys are following the rules, but you're kind of missing the mark. You're forgetting what they were given to you for. They had forgotten what the heart of the law was. And this is a group of people that had been doing this relationship with God thing for thousands of years, and they had gotten off the path. Not all of them, some of them. I want to spend some time today looking at this relationship that God had with the Israelite people And I want to do that because, one, they've been doing this relationship with God thing for thousands of years longer than we have. And God gives them something, the law, commandments, rules, that they approach in a unique way. But I think for us to understand that, I have to do a little bit of a history lesson. So sit back and just listen for a little bit. I want to talk about ancient Eastern weddings. And you'll you'll understand here why we get here. But this is a teaching that I heard a while ago. If you've been around real life for long enough, you've probably heard this before as well. But it is something that after I'm done, I hope that it sheds some light on this as it has for me in my own life and my own understanding of, of why the Jews viewed the law like they did and some still do today. So ancient Eastern weddings always, always were arranged, which for us seems, you know, this is not going to work for our time and our our culture. I mean, who here, I mean, I think about my 14-year-old daughter, I'm sure she would be well aware, or she would know what to do when it comes to picking a, a perfect mate for her. She's smart enough. No, you're not. Like, I, I, I love my daughter, but I don't trust the boys. So I want to make sure that she has a good mate. And so I, I'm actually okay with this arranged part. But this wasn't like a dictatorship. Like, this was a family event. The whole family would be involved in this choice of a mate, of a spouse for your son or daughter. You know, a son could come to his dad and be like, hey, dad, so at the festival this weekend, I saw this girl, and she looks like she could be the one for me. Her name was Rebecca. Oh, yeah, Rebecca, Moshe's dad. I know Moshe. He's a good guy. Honors God, 
does a great bit. He's an he's a honest, God-fearing man. He treats his, his family with respect, and he teaches his kids to walk in the ways of God. Yeah, that would be a great match for you. Let's see what everybody else thinks. Or maybe he's like, I, I don't know that, that family. Let's go ask Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe, no, that is not a good family. That guy's a crook. He's got dishonest scales. We can't trust him. That would not be a good, good match for our son. But eventually, they agree. They find someone that they believe is going to be a good match. And what happens now is the betrothal. So the father and son will, will gather up some stuff, and they'll head to the nearby village or wherever this young lady lives. And when they get there, the father will take out of his, his pack a cup. And he takes his cup and he'll fill it with wine and hand it to his son. And his son will go to this lady, this young woman that he wants to propose to. And he'll say, this cup is a new covenant that I give to you. I tell you, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink of it with you in my father's house. This is where it now becomes a choice for that young lady. She has the choice. She can either accept this proposal or she can deny it. If she takes the cup and drinks of it, she is saying, I accept your proposal. I accept this covenant you are offering me. Let's get married. From here, the groom leaves to prepare the house. What this means is he goes back to his father's house and he starts building a room onto his dad's house. And he has to finish this room before he can go back and get his bride. But there's a catch here. The only person who can tell him when that room is done is his father. Only the father can determine when that room is ready. So it could take weeks, months, a year. Who knows? Only the father knows. The father could walk in while the son's in the middle of doing stuff and look around and be like, this is what you want to bring your future wife to? This is a dump. Tear it down. Start over. Or he could be like, yeah, this is looking good. Maybe you might want to think about adding this or maybe change this thing over here. You're getting there. You're getting close. But eventually, the father will come in there, see the room, and say, It's finished. You're done. Let's go get your bride. So what then happens is they gather the whole family. Everybody comes together and they start this processional to the bride's house, wherever she's at, in a different town. It could take hours to get there. Who knows? Who knows what time they will arrive at the bride's house? They could get there at any time of the day or night. Does any of this stuff sound familiar to you guys? Like, I I feel like I've read a a guy who's, who's talked about this kind of stuff. Talked about having to go away and not being able to come back until his father tells him it's time. Telling a parable about 10 virgins who are waiting for the groom to return that have to be vigilant and watching for him to return Five of them do a good job, five of them don't. 
the five that don't, don't get to come into the party. So the bride's family has to be vigilant and watching for the groom to be approaching. And as soon as they see him, they're going to run off and they're going to say, he's coming. The bride, the groom's family's coming. And so they got to, now is the time to consecrate the bride. So they grab her and they whisk her away. And what happens next is that she does this ritual bathing process. And it's more than just a practical bath where she does need to get clean for the ceremony and get all done up. But it's a symbol. It's a spiritual symbol of what's going on because to consecrate yourself means that you are setting yourself apart for something special. So it's her saying, I am setting myself apart for my future husband. So, bride is consecrated. There's a shofar that sounds, that's a loud trumpet, which is signifying the beginning of the wedding. The bride comes in to the, the party. Later on in, in the future, uh, we see her come in on a, on a chair. The bride and the groom gather together under what's called a chuppah. And all that is, is it's a tent, an open-walled tent with a roof on top of it. And this thing is to symbolize the presence of God. It's to show that they are gathering together and what they are doing, they are doing underneath God's presence. And it's here that they will start doing the vows. And the groom will present to her what, something that's called the ketubah. And what this is, is something that the groom alone will write up. It'll have seven, 10, 12 different statements on there about who he is, he wants to know who, he wants his bride to know. This is who I am. This is, this is what I expect of us as we join together and do this thing called life. This is what I want to be true of our, of our relationship. This is what I want our relationship to be built upon. After this become, uh, comes the part that I'm very thankful is not observed in Western culture, and that's the consummation of the wedding. The bride and groom go off to a side room and do the deed. Yes, the deed. The worst part of it, though, is if you're the best man because you have to stand outside the door and listen and make sure it's actually getting done. And after it's done, the groom will pro provide this best man with a, a cloth with the proof that she was indeed a virgin. And he'll hold it up in the air for all to see. And the crowd goes wild and the party gets going. Everybody's glad that's not part of it now, right? So the party goes. They have the exchange of the gifts, of the wedding gifts. These are the bride price and the, the dowry, all the stuff that was agreed upon prior to this. And then this party can go for days. Sometimes it can go for a week. And at the end of this, they start their, their honeymoon. And this honeymoon is about a year long. Deuteronomy 24 tells us that it is for one year that after a man takes a wife that he cannot work, that he cannot fight. Like his, their one goal, their one purpose during this one year is to get to know each other. You think about it, 
Like, they most likely have no idea who each other is. This dude showed up on the doorstep one day, proposed, she said yes, went away for who knows how long, and then came back, and they got married. Some time away with an opportunity to get to know each other would probably be a good idea. So that's what an ancient Eastern wedding looks like. Why in the world do I bring that up when we're talking about Israel and their relationship with God? Here's the thing. I think that as we look at Israel's story and their relationship with God, you can start to pick out different things that happen throughout their history that line up with an ancient Eastern wedding. Going all the way back to Genesis 12, we see the betrothal. When God comes to Abram and says, I want to make you a nation. I want to take you from your father's house to a land that you do not know to be with me, and I will make you something. In Genesis 15, a little bit later on in this interaction, there's what's called a blood path covenant between God and Abram. And the blood path covenant is something that was used in ancient times to signify an engagement. So here God is saying, I choose you, do you choose me? The betrothal happens. The groom leaves. We could say this is the, their time in Egypt. The Jews will say that during that time, God had left. They had no idea, no idea where he was at or if he was ever going to come back. But he does come back. So we have the story of Passover. That's God coming back into Israel's life and taking him away. And they move him out. He moves him out towards Mount Sinai. And as they're approaching Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, you can read about this. God tells Moses to have the people consecrate themselves. Get themselves set apart. We're also told that there's a loud shofar that blasts over the mountain. God's presence is in the shape of a cloud hovering around the mountain, and the people are gathered underneath it. They're gathering underneath the hoopah. And then we have the presentation of the ketubah. God gives his people the Ten Commandments. Here are ten statements that tells you who I am, what I want from our relationship moving forward. This is what I want us to build this on. Consummation of the wedding, they got the, God gives them the tabernacle, which is some place that they are able to go into and have that relationship with God. Exchange of the wedding gifts. This is the Levitical law that God gives them. And then the honeymoon year, which is their 40 years of wandering in the desert. They had forgotten who God was after 400 years of being slaves in Egypt, so 40 years of wandering around, learning who God is, deepening that relationship with one another. I remember the first time that I, I heard this teaching, this taking the relationship that Israel had has with God and comparing it to a wedding 
And my mind was just blown. I'm like, this makes so much more sense now why there is so much marriage language throughout the Old Testament. Like, Israel's called God's bride a ton. A ton. And I always thought it was like, well, yeah, okay. I mean, a marriage is supposed to be the most intimate relationship we have on earth. Like, it's supposed to be a picture of who God is and what that looks like. I didn't think it was this deep, though. So learning this, it just started to open up in my eyes to how God is grieved with the way Israel reacts to other gods and how he, they abandon him. And it made me think about maybe the law wasn't such a bad thing. Like they look at the law, if, to this day, Orthodox Judaism looks at the Levitical law as the gift the wedding gift that God gave them. And that's why they, many of them will, will obey that to show God that they love him. Not to just check the box and try to stay in right standing but with God, but because they want to show him that they love him. Here's the good news. God is inviting us into that same kind of relationship. The marriage language doesn't stop in the Old Testament. It continues throughout the rest of the book. Paul uses it. He calls the bride of Christ the church, as the bride of Christ describes it. I alluded to it a little earlier. Jesus himself uses marriage language when he is talking to his disciples. He tells them, you know, I have to leave, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back, but I don't know the time. Only the Father does. In John 14, we're, we're, we get a picture into what's going on during the Last Supper night. And that chapter starts off with Jesus telling them, look, the Father's house, my Father's house has many rooms. If it wasn't that way, I would tell you but it has a room for all of you. And I go to prepare a place just for you. And I will be back to take you back to my father's house so you can be with me. It's even in the, the communion that we celebrate every week. When they celebrate the Passover and Jesus holds that cup and he says, this is the cup of a new covenant which I give to you. I will not drink of it again until I drink of it with you in my Father's house. Jesus is inviting us to have that same kind of relationship. We are being grafted in to the family of God. We're going to do communion here in a little bit. So if you're serving, if you could go over and start passing out the, the trays, I would appreciate that. If you're new here at Real Life, we have what we call an open table. We do communion every week. And what that open table means is that you don't have to be a member here. All we ask is that you have made that initial step of faith with God, that you have 
decided to make him your Lord and Savior. And we'd love for you to celebrate with us here in a little bit. Just hold on to the elements and we'll take them together in a minute. But as they are passing stuff out, I wanted to circle back around to this this idea about obedience and how this how obedience opens up the doors for us to experience God and I want to look at some specific things that Jesus has to say about this we're going to go into chapter 14 of John a little later on in the dinner night that night at the dinner when he tells them that he has a place for them I love it when the pages stick together. John 14, verse 15 says this. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Obedience is equivalent to love. God's love language is obedience. Well, what are these commands that he's talking about, though? Are we talking like Levitical law? Or, I mean, we're grafted in. Are we supposed to be following the law? No. That's already been established that we are not under that law. But Jesus does spend a, a fair amount of time giving us things that we should be doing in our life. His commandments. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see these things. Things like love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive those who wrong you. Go out of your way to make things right with someone that you have an offense with. These are just a few of the things that I've seen that Jesus commands us to do. That if we are able to do, it shows him that we love him. Let's keep going a little further into John. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. Jesus says this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. For him, it's not just about following the rules either. He wants the best for us in this relationship too. He knows that for us to to follow his commands is our way of showing him that we love him. It's our way of abiding in that love that he has for us. He makes his joy our joy, and it's full. You know, if we read these statements that I just read from Jesus, or any of the other statements that you things you can see in the text about this relationship that God wants, if you read those things with the lens that I default to, that I shared with you guys earlier, 
Like I, I look at laws and rules and commands as something that has to be done, that there's no relational element to it whatsoever. If that's how you read this stuff, all you, get to, all you begin to see is like God is this mean dictator that all he is concerned about is you doing what he tells you to do. But if you look at it with a lens of this is a God who loves me, who's inviting me into a special relationship with him, who wants me there, you can read these things and say, yes, I can do that because I love you. I will obey your commands because that's how I can show you that I love you. It's like I think about my marriage. Like I can do all the things that I vowed to my wife on her, our wedding day, but what is my motivation behind it? Am I just doing those things so that she doesn't get angry with me? Am I just doing those things because I'm a rule follower and I promise to do them, so I'm just going to do them anyways? Am I doing them because I'm hoping to get something out of it? Like, if I've taken that approach, she can tell. Like, she's not feeling very loved in those moments. But if I do the best that I can to live up and live out those vows that I gave her on that day, and I do that out of love, that's when our relationship goes deeper than we could ever imagine. We get to know one another like we've never known anybody else or ever will. And that's what God is inviting us into, is to have a relationship with him like that. As we shut down for the day, I have a few questions for you guys that I want you to think about this week. Use for conversation in your home groups or at work or whatever, whatever you have going on in your life. First question is this, is how do you view God's commands? Do you see them as a burden or do you see them as an opportunity? Do you see, when you read God's commands for you in your life, does it feel heavy, like I've got to do this or else? If I don't do this, God is just waiting up there in heaven for me to screw up, and then he's going to bop me over the head and have a bunch of consequences, and my life will stink. Like, is that how you view his commands? Or do you see him as an opportunity for you to be able to show God that you love him, that he means the world to you? How do you view his commands? Second question is this, what motivates your obedience? Are you motivated out of fear? Afraid that you're going to get God's wrath poured upon you if you don't do what he says? Are you motivated by selfishness? Perhaps you know the text very well. And you know God that, that God will bless and Keep those who do what he says. Are you just doing it to get God's blessing and his rewards? Or are you doing that out of love? What's your motivation? The last question is not a question about today's sermon necessarily. I mean, it's about 
I think it's a more comprehensive thing for us to consider. And that's this. What story are you telling yourself? As you think about the last eight weeks and this conversation that we've been having about having an ex- a relationship with a God that we can't see, what is the story you're telling yourself? Because God's story is good. God's story is a story of reconciliation and restoration. That's what he's inviting us into. So when you hear that invitation from God to join him in what he's doing, what story are you telling yourself? Are you saying, I can't do that. I am not good enough. I've got too many things going on in my life that I need to fix before I could join God. Like I got this addiction I need to get under wraps. I have this bad habit that there's no way God would approve of that. Like I got to get all these things in line before I could be able to even imagine joining God. Or are you telling yourself a different story? God sees me for who I really am. God loves me no matter what. Nothing on earth or in heaven can separate me from that love of God. And because of that, I will join God. And he will make me into the person he wants me to be. What story are you telling yourself? Because when it comes to our relationship with God, I want you guys to think of this and remember this one thing. Like it's not about getting to a destination in our relationship with God. It's about starting the journey. As soon as we step on the path, we are right where God wants us because that's where he can start to use us. That's where he can start to mold us and shape us into what he has for us. And it brings me back to this. Communion. When we take communion each week, we get an opportunity to tell God and the rest of us around, those who are sitting around you, that I am committed to the covenant that he made with me. I am committed to walking that path each and every day. I may not do it well some days. You may be sitting here today being like, I am not doing the path very well. But Lord, I want you to know I'm still committed. I still accept that invitation and that covenant you want me make with me. So on that night when Jesus had his final supper with his, his friends before he was crucified, he took the bread and he broke it and he offered it to them and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. And then after the dinner, he took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. This is your invitation. As often as we drink this to remember what he did for us, let's remember what Christ has done. Father, I, uh, again, I'm thankful, Lord, that you have given us the opportunity to come here together, to gather in your name in the open, to worship you,
and to lift your name on high. Father, what an amazing privilege it is that you invite us into a relationship with you. Lord, that you meet us exactly where we are at in our lives, no matter what. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love that you have from us. So Father, I pray that as we leave here today, all of us, that we will remember what your love language is. Lord, I pray that you help us to change our perspective on what it means to be obedient to you. That it'll be something that we do out of our heart of love for you and not out of a heart of obligation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.